So this book I brought along, um, it's a book about philosophy. It's not a Christian book. By no means is it a Christian book. And it's called Philosophy 100 Essential Thinkers. Okay. I confess I've read it. I confess I have a few books like it in my library. Um, but I brought it to illustrate a point which James is really going to deal with this morning in, in, in James chapter 3. Well, when I read this book, before I started, I was a little bit wise about it. And I thought, is this really essential? It says 100 essential thinkers. It's implying that the ideas in here that are essential to my life, essential to me understanding the world around me, to answering the fundamental questions which philosophy tries to address. And the answer is no. I knew the answer was no. Is there truth to be found in here? Is there truth to be found in 100 men and women's ideas about reality? No. The answer is no. So what is philosophy? Why did I pick it up? Well, why do I have books like this? Why may it be profitable to occasionally look at something like this? Because it tells us how the world thinks. Philosophy, to define it, is a very broad category. It's mankind's search to answer the fundamental questions. Okay? Why are we here? What is our purpose in this world? What is the meaning of our existence? How should we act? That's ethics. How should I go about my life? How can I make sense of the world around me? And the key thing with philosophy, it's a hard and fast rule, is you use reason alone. And you do not appeal to any supernatural. You don't bring religion into the picture. You don't bring God into the picture. And that's philosophy, as it has been practiced for centuries. In fact, the picture on the front of this is a painting by Raphael of Plato and Aristotle. The painting's called Plato's Academy. And, and it just tells a story of what the world is about and how they think. So now, I brought this along for the introduction, but also to read you something. I mean, you can't make this stuff up. This is from its own introduction. I'd just like to read you a, a sentence. I think they give the game away. I don't know why they write the rest of the book. It's describing something about philosophy. It says, if there is one thing, if there is one thing that characterizes both the method and the results of philosoph philosophical inquiry, it must be, listen to this, it must be the general lack of consensus that precedes the whole process and often remains even after the person's work is complete. That's from the horse's mouth this morning. We as Christians would come to that conclusion by looking at God's word. We really would. But the philosophers themselves, non-believers, come to that conclusion but carry on nonetheless. As Christians, we know that wisdom, truth, doesn't come from, from books like this. We know that wisdom and truth doesn't come from our own thinking because it's our own thinking that produces books like this. We know that wisdom only comes from the person who created us, and that is God. Therefore, wisdom only comes from God's word. So before we read James chapter 3, it will also be helpful to have a definition of wisdom. This was the first definition I came up. I didn't look and find three or four different definitions from different dictionaries. This is the first one that I came up with to define wisdom. It says it's the ability to, to discern or to judge what is true or what is right or what is lasting. It's the ability to discern or to judge what is true or what is right or what is lasting. Let's turn to James chapter 3. James chapter 3 from verse 13 to the end of the chapter. 
This is carrying on in a series that is uh, working with James chapter 3, and this is where we are. Okay, reading in the NIV from verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show it by his good life, by deeds done in humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual of the devil. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you will find disorder and every evil practice. But wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere, peacemakers who sow in peace, raise a harvest of righteousness. Let's open in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that as believers it doesn't take us long to look at the world and see that your word is a testimony unto itself, that it is true. And Lord, we want to submit ourselves to this passage of Scripture this morning. May you bring out the truths in our lives, that we might actually be a people who are rich in good deeds. And we pray that you'll just bless this time where we look at your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So my first point has already really been given. Wisdom is only to be found in God's word. It's not in ourselves. It is only something, as James says in this text, which we will return to, something that comes from heaven. It is only something that can be revealed to us. It is only something that can be revealed to us. James's second point, well, my second point that I've got from this text, the second point here is brought up in the verse 13, his first verse. He asks a question here. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show it by good life, deeds done in humility that comes from wisdom. Remember that James is speaking to Christians. We've established that, I guess, over the last few weeks. We know James is definitely writing to believers here. So when he asks that question, he's asking us. He is saying, who among you is wise in understanding? And you know, all believers should say, we are. Not because of our own right, but because we have a belief that comes from on high. We know the gospel, we know the grace and the freedom that is in Christ alone. We have that truth in our hearts. So we should be saying to James, we have wisdom understanding. And the world does not. But James doesn't want us to stop there and feel all self-righteous or, or, or feel content with that. He says, but it is only proved. It is only shown to really be wisdom if it means you have a reformed life. If it means you have a reformed life. So James is calling us to self-examination in verse, chapter, in, in verse 13. Who is wise in understanding among you? We all claim to be wise. In the church, we should claim to be wise, but we're not boasting in our, we shouldn't be boasting in our own wisdom. We only boast in Christ. But everybody claims to be wise, and that's the world we live in. And I think it was no different in the world that James lived in, but it is much more so in the 21st century. Everybody claims to be wise. It is a very common claim in today's world, both in the church and outside of the church, that there is, answer, there is an answer to the big questions of life. The fundamental questions. What is the meaning of life? What is the purpose that I'm here? How should we live? What is the difference between right and wrong? 
I think if you took a survey across most people in the church and out of the church, by far the majority would be an answer that, no, I have answers to those questions. I have answers. We live in a world where there is no fool who's a self-confessed fool. Very few fools will confess that they're fools. And I think about my own life. Before Christ took hold of me, I would not have said to you, I'm a fool. I would have said, I'm, I'm quite smart. I do well at school and I have some understanding of some topics. And I read a little bit. I'm quite smart. But the Lord says, said to me, you are a fool. We live in a world and a culture which is saying that everybody is an expert. I'm trained as an accountant. So more than a few people have said, but you're an expert in, a, in accounting. You're an accounting expert. I kind of, but I know that I'm not really, but that's how the world would see my qualification and my training. If I'm a doctor or a specialized doctor or a GP, I've got a specialized field. If you're a teacher, you're specialized, you're an expert teacher. You're an expert psychiatrist. You're an expert doctor. You're an expert mechanic. Whatever your job is, everybody is an expert. So the world is not short in answering these questions. And it's no different because in this world and culture, everybody seems to be an expert in truth and wisdom. But James says to them, you say that you know the truth, but make sure that you prove it by the way that you live. It is one thing to claim wisdom, but if that wisdom in our Christian walk does not lead to a changed life, rich in deeds that are done in humility, then we have no right to say that we're Christians and we have no right to say that we have the truth. And that's the clear, that's what James is saying at this point. Watch over your deeds, saints. Watch over your deeds, because they will show whether you have the faith. It really does speak to the issue of hypocrisy, doesn't it? I don't know if up till now that word's popped into your mind. Hypocrisy. And how many times, and I'm sure all of us here this morning, have heard it at least once, but probably many, many times, where somebody goes and says to you, I would come to church, or I don't want to come to church because it is, such, it is full of hypocrites. It is full of people who say they know the truth, but they don't live it out. Maybe our response should be, you know, there's always room for one more. Because those in the church who are getting this right, who can answer James's question by saying, yes, I have to have a life full of good, good, work, good deeds, a good life done in humility. Well, they're the ones who will be first to admit it's not easy. But at the same time, we must be very careful as Christians to identify those contradictions in our life. Are there areas in your life this morning, because I know there are areas in my life this morning, that are a bit of a contradiction to my commitment to be a disciple of Christ? And the Lord, in preparing this message, was very quick to say, here are your areas. He, it, and I think if we all think about it this morning, right now where we are in our stage of life right now, what areas do we need to answer James and say, and therefore answering the Lord, and say, I need to change? What deeds done in humility do you need to do? What areas do you need to throw your time and your effort in that you, that you know the Lord is, is calling you to do. Those areas in the church, those areas out of the church, which are works of ministry, that the Lord says, you have the gifting for those, for those endeavors. And you're holding back, you're withholding. What sinful deeds or deeds done with selfish motive 
do we need to stop? Because remember that passage in verse 13 said, deeds done in humility. Deeds done in humility. So that makes me think, how much am I doing for the Lord, which is really coming down to selfish ambition? How much of my using of giftings that the Lord has given me in the church is not done with a humble heart, saying, I am nothing except what the Lord has done for me, and everything I do needs to be for His glory. Because I think if we, if, if we search our hearts, there is some of that in our lives. Can you see so far how this verse 13, which carries on from the message we, 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 we had last week, verses 1 to 12, which itself was obviously carrying on from chapter 1 and 2, fits so well into the overarching theme of the book of James. James is a very practical, practical book. And he is interested in telling us and imploring us and saying, pleading with us to live a practical, reformed, obedient Christian life. And I need to go back to James chapter 2, because in my opinion, James chapter 2 from verse 14 onwards is really the pivotal point of the book of James. He makes a statement which, given our understanding, our doctrine of salvation, we must step back and make sure we understand. We must. He says, faith without works is dead. You have faith, but you don't have the deeds. Your faith is worthless. Your faith is worthless. James goes and says in chapter 2, Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. And it's a, such an important turn on what we know and love and cherish so much that we are saved by grace alone, not through anything we did, by faith alone, not through anything we do, in Jesus Christ alone, only in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. That's the gospel truth. And in there, there's so much grace. But it needs to lead to a reformed life, is what James is saying. If you are the person that goes and says, I hold to the gospel, but it is not shown in your life, God's word is saying that is sure truth that you do not have Christ. This is actually a principle that James is famous for, but so is the book of 1 John. 1 John is asking the question, it's answering the question, how do I know that I am saved? How do I have assurance for my salvation? Just to give you one verse from 1 John, 1 John 2 verses 3 and 4, you know you have come to know Jesus if you obey his commands. The man who says, I know him, but does not do what I command, what he commands, is a liar and the truth is not in him. It's actually a very clear uh, teaching in the New Testament that we are saved by grace alone and we do nothing to earn our salvation. We cannot even get an inch towards the mile of gaining our salvation. But it is also such a great truth that that faith, when the Lord changes your heart, will lead to a reformed life. And James is saying divine wisdom, which is wisdom from God, he says here. It's wisdom from heaven. It's the only real kind of wisdom. And when that is placed into your hearts, it must, it will produce a changed life. A life that produces deeds and humility. So that's the second point here for this morning, is that our faith must show itself in deeds. And I, I would go so far as to say that whenever we go and rejoice in the grace 
that was given to us on the cross by the blood of Jesus, it should be an immediate follow-on thought to say, how am I living in light of that? I think too often in our evangelical circles, we stop. We put a full stop after, we, after say, Jesus died on the cross for my sins, full stop. But the gospel truth in the New Testament is reforming. And it leads to works. It leads to works. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. But it is not a faith that operates alone. My third and final point this morning, and one that I'd like to develop a little further, is note how James provides a contrast here. A very clear contrast between two types of wisdom. And if you've got the NIV, it's, it head, it's the heading for verse 13 to 18 is uh, two kinds of wisdom. James here contrasts two very clear types of wisdom. The first one, he tells us in verse 14 to 16. He said, But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth, because such wisdom in inverted commas does not come down from heaven. That is not God's wisdom. But it is earthly, unspiritual, and of the devil. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you will find disorder and every evil practice. When we look into the world today, and you read the newspapers, and you watch the news on TV, and you just look around what's going on in your own suburb, in your own community, in your own workplace, I'm sure we would all be very quick to say that there is a lot of that. There is a lot of disorder, evil practice, envy, selfish ambition. James is saying that that is the opposite kind of wisdom that he's going to now tell us about in verse 17 to 18. Verse 17 to 18, he goes and contrasts it. He goes and says, But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. When I read that in preparing, I immediately thought of the fruits of the Spirit. James chapter five, uh, Galatians chapter 5 from verse two, uh, 22 and in other places in the New Testament. Paul, in Galatians, goes and stresses that if you have the Spirit, you'll have the fruits of the Spirit. And he gives a long list, longer than this list, of what is the results of having their Spirit. Having the Spirit is being a Christian. You cannot be a, a Christian and not be filled with the Holy Spirit because that is your seal, is the Holy Spirit. And I think if we were to look at Genesis to Revelation, and in particularly the wisdom literature, the book of Psalms, the book of Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Job, would you agree with me that the Bible often contrasts simply two types of wisdom? You're either a fool following the wisdom of the world, or you're wise in God. It's as simple as that. I chose one verse to back that up from the Minor Prophets, Micah 6 verse 8. The Lord is telling us, He has showed you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to work, walk humbly with your God. If you had to look at the book of Proverbs and the book of Psalms, so many of the times when it's talking about wisdom, all the time that it's talking about wisdom, it's talking about trust or faith in God. To making God your refuge. And then living in the light of that. 
That is a wise philosophy. That is the only wise philosophy in this world. And obviously, if you're not a believer, you cannot embrace that philosophy because you reject God. So by very definition, by being an unbeliever, is somebody who has turned their back on Christ and saying, I do not trust God. He is not my refuge. He is not my strength. That is immediately putting you in the other category. To be foolish and ungodly is to live without trusting God, living in continual envy, selfish ambition, and maybe if you do deeds, even supposedly good deeds, the attitude is always one of pride and the goal is always selfish. What I found most challenging in James's passage this morning is the fact that he is talking to me. He is not talking to my work colleague who is unsaved. He is saying, Michael, in your life, you have the ability to live a wise life in light of the gospel. But sometimes you join the rest of the world, the fools that are in the world who do not see Christ, just like you did before you saw Christ. And you live with pride. You do things not out of humility, but with selfish intent. And you need to change that. You need to be honest and change that. So, James is saying, work out your faith, work out your life with these qualities. The first quality is humility. The first quality, he tells us, is humility. That means when we do our deeds, when we're working in the church, when we're doing things as the Lord would have us do, we do it with the right attitude. Somebody at the end of the service last week went and said, there's another lovely text that really talks about the tongue. Psalm 19, verse 14. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my God and my Redeemer. Psalm 19, verse 14. And it fitted in so nicely with James chapter 3, verses 1 to 12. But it follows from word of mouth to the intentions of the heart. And I think that's really the root of most sin, if obviously all sin, but humility in particular. Humility in particular. So many times after doing a work for the Lord in the church, being involved in some ministry, I want to think, well, who noticed that? Who's going to congratulate me? Who's going to encourage me as I feel I should be encouraged and recognized? I wonder how many crowns I'm going to get for that work. Rather than saying, I have gotten a small part along the way to repaying the Lord for what he's done for me. And I give him the glory for what I've just done. And may he give me the strength to do so much more of that. That's humility. The second thing, purity. Purity, I defined it as actions not tarnished with sin. I wasn't quite sure how to define purity. It's if something sinful or a wrong attitude creeps into our actions, we lose the purity. Peace-loving, this one was easy. This one was easy for me to define because this one is my problem. How often do I, do, do I carry on my life with an argumentative attitude? Looking for a smile from my wife. With an argumentative attitude or maybe an aggressive attitude. Not saying in every situation, even when it means that I have to stand for truth or stand for what's right, I'm going to do it, and I'm going to ask the Lord to teach me how to do it in a peace-loving manner. 
Not in an attitude or not in a way that causes strife. That causes strife. That is one way we can really set ourselves apart from the world. In a business context, I imagine there are many times when you have to go down the line. You have to make a stand on something. Can we learn to do it in a fair, peace-loving manner? Getting a bit to that in my conclusion. Consider it. Consider it not just of ourselves, because we're very good at that. Consider it of others, not always thinking of how we may benefit from our actions, not being selfish. Continually examining the motives for our deeds and saying how much of that was selfish, because the Lord sees the heart. And I imagine one day when we stand before the Lord and we all hope to get the Lord's approval saying, well done, my good and faithful servant, he will bring, well the Bible says he will bring, to light the motives, the heart by which we did everything. Submissive is the next thing that James brings out. For some people this is a real issue. For some people this is a real issue. Can we be submissive to those who are put in authority over us at work, in the church, in the family? Or are we going to be unruly and disobedient? The next one, full of mercy and good fruit. That is speaking of a heart, a Christian heart that needs to be soft. A Christian heart that's not hard. And I don't know if, if this is just pure fiction, but I, I sometimes, I, when I meet people, Somebody challenged me years ago, I can't remember who and in what context, that sometimes you just know that you've met a soft heart. I, I know that's undefined, it's a little bit in the air, but sometimes, you, with a, and, and you see it a lot with Christians, because Christians get this right often. But even in the world with a non-believer, sometimes you meet someone and you think, this person's got a soft heart. They're not as hard as some people can be. And as Christians, we need to be sincere with a soft heart. And I think that that's what it means by full of mercy and good fruit. The good fruit is obviously talking about the deeds. It's talking about being compassionate. And it's talking about being forgiving. When we live knowing that our million sins, every single one of them deserving the Lord to turn his back on us and have an eternity separated from him in hell, every single one of those stacked up against us and he forgave it all, and he gave it all for, for, for eternity, we can have a soft, forgiving heart to whatever and I understand that this for a lot of people is a very difficult thing to do, to forgive some people. But we are called to forgive everyone for everything. The second, thing, the second last word he, uh, James gives us is impartial. That's talking about having a way of going about your deeds that is not biased and full of prejudice. It's not biased and full of prejudice. We brought up the government last week. And I find my heart being very prejudiced when we talk about government. And I need to change. Sincere, the last one. It's not a fake or dishonest or superficial way of living and talking to people. We mentioned last week that people can see a superficial attitude from a mile away. And we need to be genuine. So Galatians 5.22, I won't read it. But Paul, uh, Paul brings it up again. What are the fruits of the Spirit? And he lists everything we've just talked about now is included in his list and more. And we need to be very concerned with that. Before I go on to the last point, there's a distinction here that I thought would be nice to, to make. In the early 20th century, there was a big movement called the social gospel. 
And it's come into, into many evangelical circles today. And it is wrong. It is saying that we need to be concerned with social justice and social causes. And that is true. But they've left the gospel out of that presentation. So the idea is that as Christians, we need to go and alleviate poverty and suffering and to be, to be a help in so many hard situations around the world and in our communities. And that is true. But they see that as the priority and not as changing the heart through the gospel as the priority. So that was a problem. I believe what James is telling us here is the exact flip side of that. We cannot keep our faith to ourselves. We have to work. We have to do deeds. We have to let the world know and see that we are Christians by the way we act with humility, purity, peace-loving, a considerate attitude, submissive, full of mercy, impartial, and sincerity. We need to make sure that we don't criticize the errors of the social gospel and fall into the exact opposite, which is wrong. So how do we do that in everyday life? How can we practically now say, well, James, you have given us some real a hard question in verse 13. You've called me to self-examine my life and my works now. How can I approach this? How can I change? Well, I think it's easy in theory. We need to ask the Lord for help. I think that we do not take on the fruits of the Spirit easily without spending time on our knees before God. Some of the qualities that James brings out here, I'm hoping, have really just hit a note in your heart this morning. I think all of them we need to all improve on. But if you're like me, then one or two of them need special attention. A conscious and concerted effort on our part, where when we think about the grace that is in the gospel, we think about our response to that truth. And we remember that the Lord is saying, if you don't have a reformed life, you don't have a reformed heart. If you don't have a reformed heart, you don't have Christ. That means you're lost. I remember having a conversation to conclude, to close, with my dad many years ago. I was a Christian at the time. I must have been in my early 20s. And uh, my dad became a Christian when I was about 16. And he works in um, an environment which is much tougher than my work environment. He's a, he's, he's a miner, essentially. He's a mining engineer. And he works in an operational environment. And, and maybe some of you work currently or have worked in an operational environment where it's almost 24-hour running of a factory, or a mine in this case, dealing with lots of labor. And I think, and I'm naive in this area, I haven't ever worked like this, this has been my work experience, that sometimes dealing with labor and dealing in an operational environment is very tough. And my dad said when he reads The Fruit of the Spirit, and he knows that in the workplace, he doesn't live that out. He asks himself this. If I, am, if I am to have all these qualities and to work to being more Christ-like, just like this, will I still succeed in my work? Will I still be the best that I can be and do my job as I'm expected to do my job? Does it not take some amount of aggressive, selfish ambition and hardness in order to succeed. He had worked 30 years in business. I hadn't at that point worked a day. So the question is, can I still be the best teacher? Can I be the best businessman or employee or miner or mechanic or housewife if I act like James and Paul would have me act? 
Surely it is the arrogant and the hard-hearted and the aggressive people that always seem to get the furthest. And I think that's a fair question. So I put considerable thought in, in trying to answer that back then when my dad and I were discussing it. And we came to the conclusion that it is true. There are many people who may get ahead of us or may seem to do their job better than us because they are more aggressive, more selfish, and hard-hearted. That might appear to be true, but it is temporary. And any gains they get are temporary. And ultimately, without Christ and without a reformed life, it is unfulfilling in this world, and we don't even need to talk about the eternity. So from that perspective, there is ultimately a fulfilling life to be had by, by being, by having the characteristics that, the, that James is telling us here to have. Maybe then we need to remember also that the Lord gave you your job. That was ultimately our conclusion. My dad and I came to the conclusion that his job was given to him by God. That his ability to do the job was given to him by God. That, that his very breath was given to him by God. And that any promotion or success is ultimately in God's hands, is it not? So if we do as God says, and we aim to be the person that God wants us to be, then we need to be content with leaving the rest in His hands, because we will be the person that He wants us to be. The Lord is never hesitant to bless the faithful. The Lord is never hesitant to bless the faithful. So may we this morning be a people who are able to answer James's question and say, yes, I live a life that is a good life because of Christ, rich in good deeds. Let us close in prayer.